Welcome to the Black Doctor Collective Podcast. We as Black doctors are in a unique position. We can change our communities, healthcare, and the world. Of course, we start by changing the way we see and value ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Shanika Horn, pediatrician and physician coach, travel extraordinaire. I am so happy to have you here and listening. So let's get into it. Welcome to another week of the Black Doctor Collective Podcast. This week is a fantastic guest episode in celebration of Fertility Month. So this week we have Dr. Olu Yamisi. Am I saying your first correct? Absolutely. Correctly. Yes. Okay. And she's the founder of Montgomery Fertility Center and associate clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the George Washington University School of Medicine, which is where I went to undergrad and did my MBA. Awesome. Dr. Famuyiwa is an advocate for personalized holistic fertility care. She has been recognized with numerous awards, including the Castle Connolly Top Doctor Award since 2012, and most recently nominated as one of the Women Who Move Maryland. It's amazing. She has been recognized by Castle Connolly as one of the exceptional women in medicine every year since 2019. You cannot beat that. She recently launched the most diverse egg bank, servicing families from all backgrounds. Dr. Famuyiwa is also a staunch advocate for fertility preservation, especially for busy professionals and cancer patients. She has numerous publications in peer review journals and regularly gives presentations on the topic for fertility treatment. So welcome. I'm very excited to- Thank you. Yeah, so, yes. you know, I, I generally start these episodes with how you got into medicine, you know, what was your journey? How did you choose obstetrics and gynecology? So I want to hear all about that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Where do we start? You know, I am one of those people. I genuinely loved medicine. I have always wanted to be a physician ever since I could have memories at all. I just always wanted to be a doctor. That's amazing. From my childhood. So I was really just fascinated with the human body. I was one of those people that I would always um, take care of anyone that had wounds or incisions, or I was the one helping them clean up their surgery and sites. I just loved tinkering with the human body. Yeah. So I knew I always wanted to be a physician. That was not a question about this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. So when I um, applied to medical school, I found medicine to be very, very exciting for me. It was just every part of it was fascinating. You know how when you start your rotations in medical school, you have different rotations. I loved every single rotation I was on. <laughs> You know, I was one of those nerds that I loved, you know, pediatrics. I loved general surgery. I loved OBGYN. I didn't like internal medicine, <laughs> but I, I didn't like that one because it was like eternal medicine. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was going in the third year of medical school, you know, when, that's when, well, back in the day, I don't know what they do now. Um, you had to start deciding what are you going to apply for, mm -hmm. right? Are you going to apply for 
pediatrics, internal medicine, radiology, um, general surgery. Yeah. I liked everything. I liked cardiology. In fact, one of my mentors, my, my sheroes in medical school, um, was a she is still a cardiologist. She's older now. And I wanted to be like her, but I didn't like internal medicine. So, <laughs> and you can't get to cardiology without internal no, medicine. So, yeah, so I had to give up that dream. <laughs> then we did pediatrics. Love, love, love pediatrics. One minor problem. I can't stand to see babies and little kids in pain. Oh. I'd be crying over them and they'd be trying to comfort me. So okay, that was not <laughs> going to work. All right. So then we tried psychiatry, liked it, but I didn't, you know, I didn't like the fact of dealing with chronic mental issues. So left that alone. Didn't like ophthalmology because I don't do eyeballs. Never liked the eyeballs. Mm-mm. Anesthesia, I'd probably fall asleep while watching the patients. I can't do that. Yeah. And then, um, so I, I, you know, I tried to like radiology, took a ton of electives, took more electives on people who were going into radiologists, you know, because, you know, you hear about the good lifestyle, bored to tears. Totally boredom. That is tried to leave that so alone. funny. And then I finally said, you know what? I did like the intellectual side of psychiatry. I liked, you know, um, cardiology. I liked general surgery a lot. Um, so I just said, what do I have fun in? Mm. The minute I asked that question, the light bulb went off. Bam. Mm. Total fun in OBGYN. Nice. I totally enjoyed it. Yeah. I loved it with a passion. So it was easy for me. Now, when I went into my OBGYN residency, I loved the intellectual side of reproductive axis, studying the HPO axis, trying to puzzle out the endocrine part of it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so really liked that. Did like surgery too. Always have liked surgery. So it was now a choice between going into UN oncology versus infertility. So I interviewed a f- couple of oncology spots, but I decided I kind of didn't like um, the lifestyle, especially in the training programs. It, was, it wasn't for me. Um, interviewed in a few um, infertility programs, I was just totally fascinated with just the research and the science of it. Yeah. I found my home. Perfect. I found my home. That's awesome. So I went into infertility. That's amazing. And I, I love that because Black women in obstetrics, gynecology, you know, obviously there's a lot of history behind that, but also just the option to have a black infertility specialist is like amazing. So, so, okay. So now you're in infertility. Tell us about your current practice. Well, I, I graduated in 1999. Well, no, I finished my fellowship in 95, but I stayed on because I was just having so much fun doing research in 99. (laughs) And back then, it wasn't as explosive as as it is now. And I decided that I really did like the patient care aspect of it so much that I felt Mm -hmm. by staying in a research setting, um, I also got offers at the FDA in the regulatory part uh, got offers at uh, Monsanto, part of J.D. Searle, 
But I, I guess I, I felt that I really liked being with people more. Okay. So, and back then there weren't a lot of openings in fertility. So I spoke to a couple of my mentors and, you know, one of them was Dr. Rice, Valerie Montgomery Rice. She's now at uh, Morehouse. The, um, and she said, well, Yemi, why don't you start your own? I'm like, what? What, 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 what did you say? She said, start your own. Then I spoke to Dr. Simon. He was um, in charge of uh, REI at uh, Georgetown where I did my residency. He goes, yeah, yeah, me start your own. I'm like, uh, what? And on a wing and a prayer, you started small and just gradually started building it and just reveling in the patient care of things and mm -hmm. keeping up with the advances being made because there are a lot of advances being made. Um, makes it challenging and fun. Yeah. I mean, that's literally what you hope for when you find your career, right? Yes. Is you want to be fulfilled. You want to be challenged. Yeah. It, you want it to be cutting edge. So it really sounds yeah. like you found exactly what. Oh yeah. I, I love it. And, and I also can do certain things on my own terms. So I like to mentor um, and I like to give basic science lectures so I do that for residents. I do mentor pre-med students, both at University of Maryland and GW, and soon going to be mentoring some at uh, Georgetown, because it's just fun to, yeah. to encourage them to light the path as others have lit the path for me. So that is a bonus to my job that I like. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. I love it. Okay, so you and I had had a conversation a couple of weeks back and you had, I think, a fantastic perspective about fertility, especially as it pertains to, um, you know, career women. So I would love for you to just share that and talk about that. Oh, absolutely. So for me, I mean, I think now, unless, you know, you've been living under a rock, <laughs> you, you haven't heard about egg preservation right but several years ago they even did a study amongst um, medical residents right and they found out a lot of them just weren't really aware that when they wait too long they're going to have difficulty getting pregnant right and the ones that were aware mm -hmm. were not really fully aware of how that difficulty would be. I mean, these are educated women, yeah, right? And they weren't really appreciative of the fact that this could be an issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially for instance, women in the medical field, you are pursuing your career. You have to develop some sort of tunnel vision to make it through, right? Absolutely. You go through undergrad, you study very hard, you tunnel vision, you get into medical school with a laser focus and you go through medical school and you survive it and you thrive and you still have to have laser focus. Yeah. And then medical school's over. Now you have to compete to get into residency mm -hmm. and I'm being told residency slots are just getting fewer by the second. Yeah. So there's all that stress to get in and get through the program 
And when you finish your residency, not all of them are fully comfortable with you saying, gee, I want to take time off to go start my family, or I want to take time off to freeze my eggs. I think now we're starting to make enough noise to let medical schools and training programs know, you know what, this should not be something that is non-optional. Yeah. Because you want these women to give you the best part of their lives. Yes. Right? <laughs> so you need to reciprocate and give them something too. So by the time women go through medical school, residency, and if you want to do a fellowship like I did, you're right. piling on the years, right? You know, four years of medical school, four years of residency for OBGYN. You know, I did five years of extra training as a fellow, you know, two of fellowship, three of research. You know, the numbers start to add up so that by the time you're done with all this, um, now you have to face with, oh, gee, what do I want to do? Do I want to go into academia or do I want to start in a a new practice? And if you do, you have to make your mark, right? It's not going to be handed to you on a silver platter. So you have to make your mark, more stress, more work. So by the time they settle down, and say, gee, I might like to have children, it gets harder for them. So more and more physicians are actually needing fertility services. Yes. Right? And more and more of them are having complications Mm. with pregnancy, even when they do, right? You know, they have some of the worst outcomes with preterm birth and miscarriages, Um, all the while, trying to train and, 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 and go through. And I think we need to normalize. And I have one of my, uh, one of the uh, residents I had helped train, who's now, uh, she finished her fellowship and she's doing um, something that involves more desk work so she can be with her kids. It's okay. I think we need to normalize that and say there are different stages to your career. Yes. Different stages to your life. And it's okay to prioritize certain things at certain times. Right. You know? And we need to normalize it so that these women feel comfortable, they feel valued, they feel appreciated, and they can make life choices that affects them. So that when they decide, you know, looking back in their 60s and 70s, you can say, well, I look back and I have the life that I, I want, right? I have my family, if you're interested in having your own genes, I, you know, molded that and and weaved that with my career, maybe not all at the same time, but, but I did it, right? Yeah. So that's what I'd like to see, especially for the young ones coming through, to let them know, okay, you know, it's not all dark times, and you can have a life and there are people who are there to help you, to guide you, to mentor you. So you can look back and say, gee, you know what? I made the right choices. Yeah. I think there isn't that element of coaching because obviously medicine is one of these male dominated careers. And so the time frame for women is really not factored into like the kinds of career advice that we get. So I feel like it's so important to hear voices like yours 
that are speaking specifically to women in, you know, high-paced careers, professional women. Exactly. Who are, you know, going to have other things that factor into their, the trajectory of their life and their career, you know? Right. There isn't, yeah, there isn't um, acknowledgement of that, I think, very yeah. often. And, and, you know, and then there are some professions that can be very, very unforgiving for you taking that time off. Now, yes. think Olympic athlete, athletes, right? Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. professional um, athletes, right? Mm -hmm. You're training to get your body to be in the peak performance and you're going right. to compete. The Olympics is after all every four years, right? So <laughs> yes. it's not like you can be there forever. You have a narrow window. If you're blessed and lucky, you can last three sessions, right? 12 years, before you climb that peak and, you know, younger ones will replace you. It's just a fact of life. So you, those women also have to be encouraged that what can you do so that you can have the life you want when all of this is over, right? right. There are options and yeah. we can speak to those women speak to our professional soccer players, speak to the professional basketball players and say, there are things you need to start thinking about that you can put into play. Heck, you know, maybe the teams ought to be paying for it too. Why not? Yes, they should. <laughs> Absolutely. Insurance doesn't really cover a lot of fertility preservation unless you have cancer or unless you have some significant like I know someone with an autoimmune condition and, and her covered, but like, yeah. generally speaking, they cover virtually nothing, right? You have to pay out of pocket. Um, insurance, not to my knowledge, unless you have what is called a carve-out plan. Mm. Now, a carve-out plan is usually something that the employer buys, right? Right. They approach their different fertility pro services, insurance type plans that create a carve-out for this corporation. So usually the bigger company companies can afford it. Uh, there are some smaller companies that are looking at some carve outs too. Mm -hmm. So those uh, people that work, maybe you work for Google or Apple or Facebook yeah. or Amazon or Geico or Walmart, they are some, or Lockheed Martin, they, they are now recognizing and they're getting carve outs that are available, but not, not all, not all, Corporations have it. Right. Now, about cancer treatment, um, not only insurance covers it, actually. Wow. Um, no, it does not. I mean, because I've had a few cancer patients where, you know, we're having to struggle to get funding for them. That's crazy. You know, you know to get medication, to, to cover the actual treatment. Um, these women have to really pound the pavement and look at private funds like the Susan G. Komen foundation um not many places will i i you know if i live in the state of maryland so if there's an insurance plan for fertility preservation and cancer patients i'm not aware of it yet um other than the cover i mentioned so we are having to really knock on several doors to help this these women and you know, time is of essence. Time is a factor Absolutely. for them. They can't hang out forever. Yeah. So unfortunately, 
not all of them are able to. Wow. On top of the fact that they're dealing with a cancer diagnosis. Now, when you hear the word cancer, that's all you hear, right? Cancer, it, boom. You don't hear anything else, right? So now these women cannot go to work daily. They're going to appointments. They're in the middle of the day, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe that, so they can't, they have to take time off work. They're going to multiple labs to get radiation. To, I mean, radiology studies. They're going to different specialists. Yeah. All that is taking part of their resources, right? And on top of that, to think of fertility preservation, it's not top of mind. No. Unless the caregivers, mm-hmm. you know, our cancer, our oncologist colleagues can now partner with there are a whole host of fertility clinics out there and say, well, let's, let's partner, let's reach out. And, and not all fertility clinics may, you have to respond right away when a cancer patient calls you. It's not like book an appointment for a month from now, you got to see them right away. Right. So not everybody has the capacity. Well, you know what? There are different clinics. So if, if I don't have capacity at this point, check clinic B. And if clinic B is not between clinic, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, Somebody. someone's got some capacity to get that patient in right away. Yeah. No, that's good to know. I mean, it's funny. I, I did a podcast interview with a doctor who had cancer in her residency and knew someone else in the class before her who had cancer in their residency. So it's, and I had a friend who had cancer in her residency. So it's like, that is a, a not, that's like a, more of a niche population but they exist right like yes and and how do you you know know what all your options are without hearing these kinds of conversation correct so, correct yeah i think that we need to spread the word out more mm-hmm. and and we need to collaborate with our colleagues more yes right yeah so we need to partner with our oncologist colleagues we need to partner with the social workers we need to partner with our pharmacists. Right. It has to be a collaborative, non-compete atmosphere yeah. because we're after the greater good. Yes, yes, yeah. There's so much potential and overlap and I hadn't even thought about that. It's funny that you were saying that you chose between yes. gynonc and fertility and you still end up kind of contributing to the oncology portion, even in your choice. Yeah, Um a cancer de- de- um, diagnosis can be devastating. You know, I, I think that I'm in the happy field. We're in the field of creating lives, right? Mm-hmm. So it's always great when, you know, you get a pregnancy announcement and everything. But when you're dealing with a cancer patient, you have to balance it out. Balance it out. And, you know, the, those women are still near and dear to my heart. So I still look out for them. And, and I will always look out for them and, and do my level best to, to help them in any way I can. Of course, of course. Okay, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about the support, the need for support, how people can find support. Um, yes. But I kind of want to go back a little bit and talk about like the women themselves. And yes, we know in a career you should consider it, but like, I guess, what are some of the conditions you think people should be considering? egg freezing and what are you seeing as the benefits 
Hmm. Well, for women who have endometriosis, they probably want to freeze their eggs sooner rather than later because we know that endometriosis has a devastating impact mm -hmm. on, on your eggs, right? And also help deplete those eggs, um, increases damage to those eggs. So women with endometrial, uh, endometriosis should be top of mind to, to freeze their eggs, mm -hmm. right? Um, women, we've talked about busy professionals, uh, women with a cancer diagnosis will be top of mind. And then when you start to get above the age of 32 mm -hmm. and you're not ready, right? doesn't matter what category of those I just mentioned you're in, yeah. you need to consider freezing your eggs, right? The ideal time frame, because yeah. if they start considering it at 32, when should they be in there by? <laughs> Before 35, hopefully. Okay. I mean, you can still freeze your eggs up to 37, 38, but you just have to yeah. freeze more and more rounds of it. Um, so, you know, 32-ish will be a good age unless you have a medical condition that you may say, let me um, come in a little earlier. So for instance, I have frozen eggs on someone who had really, really bad endometriosis, debilitating, had multiple surgery. So we froze our eggs up to age 28, right? Now, on the note of egg freezing, I, this is probably my one PSA out here. I know medical marijuana is very popular right now. However, it does have a detrimental effect on egg quality. Oh, that's Yeah, you know, smoking too also has a detrimental quality uh, effect on egg quality. So, you know, I think I, I make a joke that you know, the next uh, fertility clinics will probably open in next door to the dispensaries. So, you know, <laughs> get your, your medical marijuana and check in at the fertility store next door because yeah. you might be needing their services. Oh, man. No, that's, I hadn't thought about that. And obviously with the increasing legalization of marijuana, Correct. just speaking, yeah. you've seen a, a higher rate of people using it and reporting it and so yeah yeah and, and also for women who who want to be egg donors mm. you can't be an egg donor if you're using medical marijuana yeah right wow. so that's another food for thought no that's good to know i think that's important because that's really where we are right now as a society is that everyone correct and their mother is using yeah <laughs> i know I know. I mean, I can go on and on about it, but um, I know it's not a popular thing to talk about, but reality is reality. And, you know, when you are planning your life, you desire certain things. You want children using your own genes. Think about it. Now, you know, you don't have to have children from your own genes. Right. You can always use an egg donor. And, and most importantly, like I tell some patients, you can always adopt. There's nothing wrong with adoption. Right. It's how you complete your family, right? And I've known a lot of patients who've been exceedingly happy with their adopted children. It all boils down to what would you like? Get the information you need so you can make the appropriate choices for you, whatever that choice is. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it's important to know what the option are and try to figure out what is your best option. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. 
that's that's what I emphasize that I will give you information. My job is to give you information and you need to take that information in mm-hmm. and apply it and say, okay, how does this best fit me? Yeah. Yeah. So a little bit, I guess, of a mindset question. Yeah. Because I know myself, people I talk to, when you first hear about egg freezing, there is a time period where you're just thinking about it. Yes. You're just, oh, well, maybe I should do it. And it sounds like a good idea. What do you see? I mean, I assume you talk to hundreds of people about egg freezing. What do you see as some of the barriers? What are the, some of the things that people need to overcome? Ah, good question. Yeah. Well, people will say, gee, I don't know whether the medications hurt me. Or will I get complications? Or does that mean I'm going to use up all my last eggs? And, you know, or, you know, how do I know this will even work? Or can I afford it? Right. Um, You know, can I put money together for it? Um, Do I have time to take off? Or can I find a clinic that will work with my work schedule? Because that's important. Yeah. Right. Um, So how will it? work with your work schedule so that you're not, you know, taking all of your exhausting your PTO Um, with regard to expense. If you're thinking about it, stop putting a couple of hundred dollars in a savings account every month. If the thought crosses your mind, open a savings account, stop putting a couple of hundred dollars in it. Um, It'll it'll amount to something with regards to the processes. Um, Go to the individual clinics and see who you feel comfortable with. Everybody has a different flair. It's like, do you want a a Toyota or a Honda? Or do you want a limousine? Or you want a Mercedes? (laughs) Every clinic's different. So figure out how the atmosphere works for you. Do you feel comfortable there? And if you do, by all means, go, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I think those are all really good questions. So can we answer some of them? I think for the most part, people have questions on it's medicine. You can definitely talk to your individual doctor about it. Obviously freezing earlier is better because of success rates or timing. So can you talk a little bit about that for people who are on the fence? (laughs) Right. If they're on the fence, understand that now, we're talking general terms. So most uh, people yeah. who freeze their eggs before, you know, around age 32 or so, if you freeze up to 15 or so, you're probably okay. But then you have to decide, right. how many children do I want, right? Now, if you just want one child, probably 15 is okay. However, if you're now 37, 38, 15 is no longer okay. Maybe you need up to 20, Right. And if you don't freeze it, you you freeze it closer to 40, you may need like 30 or, you know, 40 at an age where you can't, you may not even be able to get those level eggs, right? In order to sort out and get the one best one. So now having said that, there are occasionally you'll find someone who is totally out of that norm, whose egg quality does start to decline you know, maybe around 32, 33, and then they nosedive, right? After that. So, you know, those women may want to freeze earlier and they may want to consider more than one cycle. 
right? So when I see my patients, I have a conversation. Have you thought about what size of family you might like in the future, right? So if we just, you just want one child, that's okay, right? Keep that in the back of your mind and let that govern you in terms of, you know, how many rounds or how many eggs do you want to freeze? But if you think you want, yeah. maybe you want three children in the future, or maybe you want four, then you might need to do more than one cycle of egg freezing to make sure you have an adequate amount to meet those needs. And if you want, you know, two or more children in the future, then you definitely want to consider freezing your eggs sooner rather than later, because then you don't have to freeze quite as much. Right. Okay. That's good to know. The math certainly helps. Also the concept of having to do more than one round, because everyone I think assumes like, I'm going to go in, I'm going to do this one thing and then I'm done. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So they need to look at it and say, well, how many children do you want? You know, do you want a big family? Do you want a small size family? All those things should start to govern how you prepare yourself financially and mentally. And and sometimes you don't have to freeze all the eggs you want to freeze in the same year. I've had patients who'll come back and say, okay, I need to marshal my resources together. And they'll come back the following year and do a second cycle. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But that means you have to have a lead time. You have to start early because you can't be... 39 and then oh no oh no yeah so yeah yeah you cannot wait till that age right Um, I think most programs are now saying you know you're 42 I doubt that anyone will freeze your eggs at that age because the rate of unemployed is so high right um that it you're hard pressed to get any live birth I mean, there are no absolutes, but you would need so many eggs and there's still no guarantee. And you can do it with the thought that, gee, when I turn around to use these eggs, I very well may still need to use donor eggs. So I'm just doing this just to see if I have any. Yeah. 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 Wow. I feel like I'm learning all kinds of things in this conversation because I'm like, I don't think even when I thought about it, the the need to do like the need to do more than one round was a surprise to me right or like you know the importance of starting I think you know in my 20s I certainly was not thinking about this I had no concept of preservation of fertility but also when you're in your 20s you're kind of like yeah, I'll probably get married by 30 and you know this person will well I mean I I I wouldn't necessarily advocate freezing your eggs in your 20s. Yeah, that may be a little too early, right? right? So your 20s is when you're exploring yourself, going about your career, um, tasting the world. Um, The majority of um, people will probably be okay and waiting till they're at that 32 mark or so. Um, You know, unless you know that you have uh, people that have endometriosis, for instance, or have you know, cancer, you know, that's a different category of people that might need to consider it sooner rather than later. Yeah. 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 I mean, like that's good info. I think we don't think about it in that terms and we don't think about it in like, you never know when you're going to meet your person or 
Exactly. When you know, and then back in the day, I've had, you know, way back before egg freezing became a, a commonality, um, patients who would go into relationships that they normally wouldn't be in mm. because they think, oh, gee, I really want to get pregnant. I want to have a family. So I'm going to stick it out with this relationship. And, and it may not even be a safe relationship for them. Oh. Right. So this allows them to even make, to safeguard their, I've had a patient who um, in the midst of fertility treatment, which we know can be very difficult in marriages, the husband decided, you know, he wanted to, um, um, not go forward anymore. Oh, wow. And so she turned around and said, well, you know, while he's not interested at this moment, I don't know what, if he'll change his mind down the road. So I'm freezing my eggs. Right. Were they planning right? to freeze embryos and then you had to change strategy? They wanted to create embryos and get pregnant before they started having marital friction. Mm -hmm. So, and hopefully they're seeking out counseling, but she was proactive to say, I mean, while we're doing this, I want to freeze my eggs because I'm in my mid thirties and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where I stand and I don't want to wait till I'm 44 and, you know, the whole thing collapses. I don't want to be in that. Boat. Don't want to put all and your I, eggs, eggs in one basket. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I can commiserate with that. Yeah. Or there are women who are in relationships where the guy's not committing. Right. And it's always one long drawn story, but he's not committing. And when he does commit, he's not committing on when to start a family. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a relationship expert, but <laughs> you can be proactive and, and safeguard your own, your own interest. Of course. I mean, a lot has changed, right? Even in the last like 50 years in terms of mm -hmm women and choices and, and marriage and the structure of marriage and the way partners are chosen and things like that. And so there's a lot of progress there. And I think this is one other option that adds to the choices, right? It's not rough Correct. to choose a partner because of a biological clock, but really choosing a partner that is safe for you and is exactly. the best exactly. for you. Uh, exactly. Not just because you want to have biological children. Exactly. Yeah. And then the other option of even if you are partnered, but you're trying to progress your career to a certain point, having that option. So I love yeah. that there are a lot of choices now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask about, because I, I found this so fascinating. I wanted to ask about your egg bank mm -hmm. and how you created that. I will, first of all, tell the audience about the fact that you have an egg bank and what it's like? I do. So we have always struggled to find, we have a lot of patients who need donor eggs and um, we've always struggled to find donors using existing egg banks for our patients. And, um, you know, sometimes they would register with outside egg banks. And if they're lucky, they get called, they get you know, they find someone. But when you look at those egg banks, you might find that um, the diversity is not there for them. So they'll tell me, Doc, I mean, I've been looking and looking and you know, I really can't find who I like. And they have this one person and now she's no longer there. Um, and that was coming back over and over and over again. So 
my staff and I um, attended a conference on this and um, decided, you know, this is a pain point for our patients. And we're going to research this and launch our own egg bank. We got the software to uh, have a database where we can showcase egg bank. We got, you know, staff that would help us go through the initial applications because we don't take everybody. And I was amazed that um, we started this, I would say end of July, August last year, and it's grown into a sizable egg bank. Um, yeah, so wow. to the point where we almost have a backlog of processing um, our, our potential donors. And now our own patients can have choices can say, oh my gosh, you know, yeah. this is who I like because she has this background or that background. And I, I am still in amazement that we were able to just build it up so fast. In fact, we're now, you yeah. know, working double time to keep up with the pace of it. So, so it's really something exciting. I mean, and yes, yes. And, you know, and I feel strongly about looking out for our donors as well. Um, you know, I, I'm very rigorous in terms of who we allow. And when they do come in, we actually support them so that when after retrievals, for instance, we have visiting angels or someone like that um, who stays with them um, for the, because me, if they're coming from a long place, I make sure someone's with them, make sure they're comfortable, make sure they're cared for. And I do, um, advocate for them not to over donate, right? So that's another yeah. thing that they need to be aware of. Um, so, and then another thing I'm very cautious about is the method of stimulating our donors so as to avoid hyperstimulation because you don't want to hurt them, right? So, so yeah. we're very careful how we do that. Now, you may not get as many as some other egg banks when you do that, but patient first and you end up with better quality eggs and the safety of your donor in mind and we're providing a valuable service to patients who otherwise wouldn't have that choice. So out of my own curiosity when you're deciding to donate the eggs are you I mean how many cycles do people do or what's recommended? Um, I think the recommendation is not to over, I, I wouldn't go over six um, cycles okay. in anyone. Um, and also because you also be, have to be careful of the gene pool. Like if somebody lives in a certain town and is donating over and over in that mm -hmm. town, you know, you might oversaturate your gene pool in that town. So that's one of the reasons why you don't. When we talk to women, they have to know that they're doing this for altruistic reasons and they want to actually help. All right, out of the genuine goodness of their heart. Um, so you have to go into what is the underlying support system for those donors? What family structures do they have that are supporting them, that are there for them? All those matters because then they can go through successfully produce good eggs. Wow. I don't know if I even ever thought about the egg donation process. First of all, they're amazing because the egg retrieval process is not an easy one per se. Like you have to be really good with your medicine and 
doing the daily injections and such. So yes, kudos. Yeah, yeah. We we tend to handhold mm-hmm. our donors so that um, we're we're helping them okay. every single day. So it's not like here are the medications you need. You know, <laughs> check back with me later. Yeah, we're going to actually hold their hands through. Yeah, and um, I think I gave a clubhouse audio. One of my donors and I had a session um, several months ago, and she talked about how she was so well treated. This was someone who already had a child of her own, so she really didn't want anymore. But we we still held her hands throughout the whole process. Um, You know, she became almost like family in the clinic, and every single step of the way, we were making sure that she was comfortable, Mm -hmm. that she knew what she was doing. We answered her questions. And that she was cared for more importantly and, and, and didn't have any issues or complications at all. Yeah. I mean, that sounds very nice. <laughs> yeah. It's also really important. That oh, absolutely. I love absolutely. that all of your message has like been very patient-centered, patient-first. I think a lot of times you don't always see that. And I think in fertility, particularly because it is financially driven, for some people, you don't always find that attitude. So I applaud you for that approach and, you know, putting people first, for sure. Oh, absolutely. That's what makes this fun. That's why, you know, it's rewarding to work with women and knowing that, you know, they have a pain point. Mm -hmm. Um, They are trying to um, have a child and all of a sudden, they're hitting obstacles they never thought about. It's it's very devastating. It's um, infertility trauma. You know, it's almost like the loss of a loved one. Yeah. Except in this case, is the loss of a potential loved one, right? Well, which you, yeah. which can even be worse because then you you have nothing to mourn over. Right, and people don't recognize that as a loss. Oh, yeah. it is. Yes. They go through the four stages of yeah. you know, Kubler-Ross. No, I, I feel like, yes, I can see that they feel that. But like, how do you explain that to someone else outside of yourself? Right. Even with yeah. grief, it's like when you lose someone for real, people rate rank that based on like how close they thought you were to that person is how they'll allow you to be off from work or have that time to grieve. So imagine when it's not a person that has actually been brought into life. People are really not that exactly that, like society is not that right. loving towards you. Yeah. Yeah. So the support at work, the support at home, mm-hmm. you know, I try to work with my patients a little bit. I, I ask them, you know, because I have a lot of professional nurses, doctors, um, some lawyers, and I'll ask them, you know, let's look at your work schedule because I really don't want you taking too much time off. So let's see what the clinic can do to accommodate your schedule so Mm. that you're not panicked about, oh my gosh, you know, if I don't get in at some time, I'm going to be in trouble. That just stresses the whole process. Absolutely. So we don't need that. Um, Then if patients tell me, oh my gosh, I have a consulting job, I'm going to be flying, you know, to the East Coast or the West Coast, you know, Mm. then I'll be like, you know what, maybe you should go do that first, wait a little bit. And then when things settle down, I'll give you an instance. Most of my teachers, we do their treatments in summer. 
of course. Right. I have a lot of teachers in, in uh, Montgomery County Public Schools. Yeah. Um, we do their we do their treatment in summer. So when they're off. Exactly. That's perfect. You know, without interfering um, with their. Yeah. I think that's yeah. yeah. I mean, that's amazing. I I I think people are really unaware that you have to go in pretty frequently during this preservation time and yeah. having the regular appointments and the regular sonograms and such. So um, yeah, I mean, the timing of it is important. So I love that. So the overall message to everyone listening is start early. So that way you have a lot of flexibility in the, when you get it done and how many cycles you're able to do and the actual quality of your eggs. So Absolutely. Sooner the better if you're on the fence. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, this was such an amazing conversation. Is there anything else Thank you think you. that, you know, like other young Black physicians need to hear? I think that's the bulk of it. I would say, listen, if you know of a different forum where I can share the same message, please reach out to me. I'll be happy to give that message um, so that more yeah. ears can hear. Yeah, that's amazing. And where can the good people find you if they are interested? I am on social media. You can look me up on LinkedIn page mm-hmm. at Dr. Famuyiwa, Oluyemisi Famuyiwa. You can go to my website, um, MontgomeryFertilityCenter.com. It has all my tags for all my pages. I'm also on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. Wow. You can look me up on Linktree. Okay. It's dr doctor dot yemi y e m i underscore famuyiwa, and that will take you to every single site that I have, including my blogs on Medium, um, and um, my my TikTok page, my um, Twitter page. It's all on my link tree. Fantastic. We're gonna include the link tree in the show notes, so anybody that's looking for you will be able to click right on the link awesome. tree. And they'll be able to see all of your things. We'll, we'll put exactly. links there so that people can find you easily. Thank you. That'll yes. Awesome. Thank you. Yay. I'm so glad Thank you were able to have time and share your journey and your work. And I hope that this has been enlightening for people who are interested in preservation. Or if you weren't interested before, now you might be. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank exactly. You so much. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you. This has been this has been amazing. Thank you. All right. So until next week, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. And what I want you to do next is write a review. I'm gonna make this so easy for you. Just go ahead and give me five stars, but also leave a comment that tells me how we can be off the charts. I want you to link us everywhere you can, Instagram at The Black Doctor, The Black Doctor website to join our newsletter. Just become part of our collective. I want you here. Thanks. Until next time. Bye.